How are you? Everybody want to find a seat? Thank you. There's a few of you here that are ready to roll. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Um, have you guys ever heard of phototropism? Even if you haven't heard the word, you probably are familiar with the process. It's the elongation of plant cells toward its source of energy. So it's when a plant grows toward its greatest source of light. It reaches for the sun to jumpstart photosynthesis and to regulate its own growth. Its orientation toward the light makes it possible for the plant to thrive even in adverse conditions. I mean, you don't have to be a botanist to understand that, right? That plants strain and bend and reach toward the sunlight. A good example of it is in my backyard. Let's see. Oh, it's, I don't know if you can really tell, but that evergreen tree is kind of straining and bending out from under what is normally, when it's in bloom, a much denser tree between the roof and that bigger tree um, to get to its sunlight. And I wouldn't be the first one to use the analogy, of course, of the, the sun and the plants when it comes to our growth as Christians. But it does seem that our exposure to Jesus, our light, is pretty connected to our, our faith life and our spiritual growth. We need Jesus to jumpstart that, don't we? Just like plants need the sun to initiate the process of photosynthesis for its survival. I mean, nothing green grows in a cave. I might say that the measure of the depth of our relationship to God during Lent or any time is dependent not on what we do, but on our position. Are we positioned to take in the presence of Jesus? And I think Lent is a good time to kind of take inventory of that maybe and move away from our cave-dwelling dark existence and move toward the light that renews our growth. Lent can leave us pretty weary, though. Today is the fourth Sunday in Lent. Does anyone feel a bit of weariness? or tired, we've been making these small, many of us have been making these small sacrifices, or num some not so small. I know someone who uh, was trying to give up cussing, but, f and that's not as small, I mean, it's me, I'm talking about me. It's me. <laughs> I thought that would like, you would make that connection. But our, so not so small. But our efforts to give something up in order to make space for God and to make space for what God is trying to teach us. And like many failed kind of New Year's resolutions, you know, it can leave us a little bit weary. Even if we haven't successfully given up something for Lent, I think it is enough to just lean toward the light and orient ourselves toward Jesus and to change our posture just a little bit. Like we sometimes say in the opening prayer, that we open ourselves to the possibility of finding the beauty and the goodness in Jesus and in this body of people. What we've been given in the lectionary in these weeks of Lent are stories of light seekers, those who have leaned toward the light, stories of those who have allowed Jesus to make his way to them and soaked up his presence where they have discovered life. And like us, they're flawed group of people. They're outsiders uh, like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, lost in the darkness of death like Lazarus, and physically broken like the blind man that we're going to talk about today. So what does it mean to lean toward the light, the light of Christ, for the Pharisees, in Jesus' time, the answer was to look to the Torah, the law, and the prophets. But what we see in the text is that a clash is, is coming, a clash between the stewards of religion 
and this new man, who some thought was a prophet, who seems to be performing these miracles and works that are only possible with God. We see this clash unfold in a series of meetings and encounters. And in this rather long uh, passage of scripture, what we see play out fits perfectly with the larger theme in John's gospel. And that is the decision one is often forced to make after encountering the Messiah. Jesus, will they lean toward the light or will they remain in the darkness of of bad religion, of a religion that has become so preoccupied by the rules that it can't see its own blindness? The irony here is this supposed sinful man, that's how we're kind of introduced to him, blind from birth, can now see because he has been exposed to the light, Jesus. Jesus. And the religious leaders, on the other hand, refuse to even consider whether this obvious miracle is the work of God because it interferes with their beliefs about the Sabbath. So, adventures in missing the point, right? Well, let's get into the story. I think it can kind of be broken up in, like, three scenes. The first scene is the miracle. Um, To nutshell it, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He and his disciples come upon a man who has been blind. Uh, And after a brief exchange, exchange, Jesus bends down and mixes his spit with some dirt, and he spreads this paste on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man does it, he's, he's healed. So the disciples start with what I think is kind of a reprehensible question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the insinuation by the disciples that somehow human misfortune was an act of divine punishment is pretty awful, I think. Both the disciples and the Pharisees a little bit later on in the scripture assume that there's some connection between his disability and sin. They assume that this disability has to be punishment of some sort. Rabbi, they say, who sinned that he would be born blind? I kind of understand that thinking this way is a way to hold on in some way to to a, a system of justice maybe. It's comforting to believe that when something seems so unfair, so unjust, like a baby being born blind, that it's easier to make sense of it if we assume there's some secret thing that's being punished. It's kind of comfortable to think uh, this way because we want to reason that something so awful could, uh, could happen, something like this. If things are random, it's too terrible really to make sense of, isn't it? It throws my world, at least, off to think that I believe in a God who is all-loving, all fair and all powerful would let something so unfair happen. It's especially convenient when, you know, we're pretty well fed, well off, pretty healthy mentally and physically, and if we're not, we have, usually at least, have the luxury of health insurance. But I think Jesus resists any attempt to order the world in that way. The world is way weirder, way darker, and more complex than that. And in reality, I think God is seeing things and working in ways that are not in focus for us. In fact, that is kind of the theme of all of the lectionary readings this week. In the epistle, uh, Paul urges the Ephesians to live in the light and repudiate the deeds of darkness. But to see ourselves and the world like God does requires some pretty radical vision correction, doesn't it? I think that's because God doesn't look at the world like we do. Samuel anointed David as Israel's new king, only after looking at David's seven brawny brothers, much more qualified brothers. He said, no, 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 no. 
Where's the little, who's this little scrawny one that's like been out with the sheep? That's the one I want. David was the youngest and most unlikely political candidate, but the Bible tells us that from that day, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So whatever we feel or think about the, the terrible things that happen around us, God's power and justice is working and shines more brightly than any of it. Um, but we have to be ready to, and willing to just dismantle some of those assumptions and allow God to reshape and remake them. And so here, Jesus rejects the possibility in this man of sinfulness that was bearing the reason for this guy's blindness. Instead, he says, this happened that the works of God might be revealed in him. So just to be clear, do not hear me saying that actions do not have consequences. Absolutely, they do. Good things often happen as a result of of good actions, and bad things often come about as a result of bad actions or bad choices. And bad things often come about as bad actions or bad choices. Drinking and driving is an example. This is a terrible risk to take and can have dire consequences. But it isn't always inevitable, is it? It doesn't always make that much sense. People that drink and get behind the wheel of a car often arrive at home just safe. And real acts of kindness are a lot of times mocked or exploited. And I find it perplexing, but the world is not some kind of moral slot machine where we do something good and get a commensurate outcome or result, is it? Jesus said, you're not seeing things the way I see them. You can't apply these rules to this blind man or to his parents. Something much more mysterious, much more strange, and even hopeful is going on. I don't understand why painful things happen to some of us and and not to others, but I do know that this weird world with all its misery and all its sadness is actually the raw material that God is lovingly and wisely forming and molding and reshaping into his new creation. N.T. Wright says, in this miracle of healing, John is showing us that God's life and the life of the world are crashing together. John knows that chaos is coming. Uh, I mean, Good Friday's coming, right? Jesus' arrest and his murder. And we are still reeling from that chaos, but he is establishing a new world of healing and light. And though I don't get it most of the time, it is, it is actually happening. Back in the first chapter of John, the light shines in the darkness. It says, and the darkness did not overcome it. And here in, in verse 5, I am the light of the world. John is pushing us toward a new creation, the time when God will make all things new. So in the second scene, we see this interrogation of the man and his parents. So his neighbors find out that he can see now, and they bring him directly to the Pharisees. So thanks a lot, neighbors. And at the heart of of this kind of back and forth that happens between them was this miracle that had taken place on the Sabbath. And according to strict Pharisaic rules, you you know you just can't heal on the Sabbath, whether it's with spit or anything. So some of the Pharisees believed that no actual man of God would have broken this law. So who's blind, right? Having been delivered to the Pharisees by his neighbors, the man is now in this impossible position of having to explain how he can now see without getting on the wrong side of the religious authorities who can really make or break his life and his relationship to the community. For context, in the early church, to be banned from the synagogue, which was their ancestral places of worship, was to be effectively cut off from religious and communal life. It would be a banishment that would change his life forever. 
the whole family. They couldn't just go down the street to another synagogue. It would have represented a fundamental change for them that they would have lived with their whole lives. So John knows here that the threat of this kind would really resonate. And he reminds the early Christians that by following Jesus, they were being pressed into some pretty tough choices. Well, what do the Pharisees do? They say, get this guy's parents. Where's his parents? Whose kid is he? And they say, is this your son? And even his parents find themselves in the crosshairs of the authorities. And just like their son, they immediately are aware of the cost of answering in the wrong way, social and religious ostracism. So they do what many of us would do when we're caught in, a, in an impossible situation. They just pass the buck. They say, you know what, he's old enough. We're not going down for this. He can speak for himself. It's easy to forget, I suppose, that their whole communal lives were at stake at this moment. But the Pharisees are not happy with the answers. They continue to question them, and they kind of go back and forth, saying, give God the glory by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And the man's response is, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind, and now I see. And ultimately, he's thrown out of the synagogue the place he most likely had worshipped his whole life. And while this must have been really painful for him, he cannot deny that his, his life has been changed radically by his encounter with Jesus. And in the third scene, Jesus meets the man again. So having heard the punishment enacted by the Pharisees, Jesus goes looking for him, the man he had healed, and he begins to, to talk with him, and he begins with the question, do you believe in the Son of Man, he says? And the, man, the healed man says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. He could have just said, you. It was you. Maybe he's learned, you know, from a life of pain, from being the lowest person on the social totem pole, that it's probably best to just let your superiors uh, tell you the answer rather than give it yourself. Maybe it was self-preservation. The good news is that the man doesn't stay in that place, hedging his bets to keep the peace. Once Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, John tells us that the man confesses his belief and worships Jesus. And even though this is a miracle story, the gospel writer, uh, interestingly, doesn't spend too much time on the actual healing. The focus is really on the religious community's response. And it's in those responses that I, I read this beautiful poem. Um, it's by an Israeli poet, Yehuda Amechai, I think. It's called The Place Where We Are Right. I'll read it for us. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. The Pharisees were so entrenched in their hard, trampled ground of their rules and their laws that nothing could grow out of that kind of certitude. They couldn't see what was plainly in front of them, the, this miraculous work of healing. And John tells us that Jesus sees the blind man, man a man who no one else had seen. In his, the eyes of his peers, the man was contaminated, he was burdensome. In his community's calculus of human worth, the blind man barely even registers. He's not a human being, he's blindness, he is his condition. Which is why when the man's sight is restored, Jesus, by Jesus, his own townspeople, the people he's lived with and worshiped with for years, don't even recognize him. 
They don't know how to see him without his disability. I think to see him would be to recognize a common humanity, a, a bond, a kinship that maybe would have been intolerable for the Pharisees. So of course, when the man shows up at the temple healed and whole, the community, community rallies to discredit him, to restore the order, to reestablish the social hierarchy and reinforce the status quo. And I, I, I wonder if you're thinking the same thing I am, which is why? Why? Why does the community feel such an urgent need to silence this poor healed man? I wonder if the core reason is fear. A fear that is so primal, that is so deep, it drives away any compassion, any empathy and tenderness, any sense of kinship. You know, sometimes fear can be the loudest voice, right? John says in one of his letters that perfect love casts out fear. And the gospel stories are all about different ways in which this is happening. The ways in which the cave dwellers are, are coming out, are blinking hard in the light and coming out of their darkness. Let things come into focus. They're also about the ways in which this doesn't happen. When some resist the perfect love of Jesus and huddle in the back of their cave in blindness and darkness. But for John, love and healing are all a part of the new creation which is happening in and through Jesus. If the man's blindness isn't a punishment for sin, then what does that mean about how the world works? Anyone could get sick or suffer. That would be a version of reality that good religious people just can't tolerate. It's a terrifying and destabilizing version. Not only does the community's legalistic approach, their fear, prevent them from seeing the healed man, it prevents them from seeing God's love and the power at work right in their midst. It completely cripples their understanding of what has actually happened. No one in the story rejoices that this man is healed. No one, not even his mom, expresses joy or wonder or awe or gratitude. No one says, I am so happy for you. What in the world is it like to see? Instead, the community responds with fear and contempt. Its need to preserve its own sense of righteousness, more important than celebrating this man's restoration. The, poem, the place where we are right, the poem says, is hard and trampled like a yard. Hard and cynical, hard and suspicious, hard and stingy. Blindness itself is not an indication of sin, but claiming to be able to see when you can't certainly is. And you know what this tells me? For me, this suggests that vulnerability, that softness, that curiosity, and openness are essential to real seeing. The gospel tells us that Jesus' true identity eludes just about everyone until after his resurrection. Even his disciples, the people he had been closest with, struggle to understand who and what their teacher is. Most of the people who encounter Jesus are too busy seeing what they want to see, a magician, a heretic, a political leader, a carpenter's son, a phony, a clerical threat. They're too busy to notice that the blind man, who is free of all of those filters, sees by the end of the story. The blind man is the only one who sees Jesus as the son of man, and in the end he addresses him for who he really is. Lord. We might say then that this is one of the beautiful moments in the Gospels when Jesus himself is truly seen. The blind man sees Jesus as fully and purely as Jesus sees him. 
the gaze and the recognition in the story are mutual. Because the healed man has no preconceptions. Because the spiritual ground he stands on is soft and it's supple. He's able to see God as God is. Doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, like a plow. They allow the whispers of God's spirit to bring new life. Whether we want to or not, I think we, I mean, we all know this, we face some pretty tough choices in our life and in our spiritual walk. The choice to see, the choice to turn away. Will we allow the ground we stand on to remain pliable? Or will we just harden our stance, refuse to grow and to change? Will we be flexible in the ways that we extend love? Or will we hunker down in fear and suspicion because it feels like certainty and control? Will we have eyes to see our neighbors regardless of their condition? What that is, whatever that is, sick, healthy, citizen, foreigner, protected, vulnerable. Sometimes I think one of the most dangerous things we can do is delude ourselves into thinking we actually are fully sighted just stumbling around in the back of the cave like everything's okay. Maybe healthy people befriend their blindness. I don't mean rationalize it or excuse it. They recognize that acknowledging their blindness is actually an act of liberation. Maybe the journey toward the light begins when we acknowledge our darkness. I'm kind of in awe by the end of the story, really, of the trust the healed man had in Jesus a trust that was deep enough to enable him to just bear honest and radical witness to his experience, even with all the risks. Healed, he sheds his identity as the man born blind, and he just becomes a disciple, a pilgrim, straining forward, straining towards the light, instead of letting others tell him what is right and true. He is, in the truest sense, born again, fully sighted with crystal clear focus. Um, I, I came across a story about a man named Oliver Sacks. Maybe you guys have heard of him. He's the neurologist that wrote the book Awakenings, on which the movie was based. But he's written a bunch of books, um, one of them called An Anthropologist on Mars. In that book, he tells the story about Virgil, a man who had, a man who had been born blind. Um, or not born blind, but he was blind from early childhood. When he was 50, uh, Virgil underwent surgery, and after about five decades of sort of smelling and feeling his way through life, he was given the gift of sight. But as he and Dr. Sachs found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same as seeing. Virgil's first experiences with sight were really confusing and disorienting. He was able to make out colors and movements, but arranging them into any kind of coherent picture was really difficult for him. Form, distance, and size were like those words were meaningless to him. He would confuse the idea of depth and roundness. Before the operation, uh, a doc the doctor would give him a cube and a sphere to feel, and he totally knew the difference by feeling the shapes and could name them. But after the operation, the doctor would show him the same cube and sphere without letting him touch, touch them, and post-surgery had no clue at all what he was seeing. The distinction didn't translate across the senses. Over time, Virgil did learn to identify various objects, and um, his habits, though, and his behaviors were still those of a blind, a blind guy. And Dr. Sachs uh, says in, his, in the book about the experience of getting this gift of sight, he says, one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It is the interim, the limbo, that is so terrible. 
Well, during this season, I pray that if we're in our limbo, if we're in the in-between, we can confess our blindness and we can receive sight, even if it's disorienting, even if it's confusing, but that we could position ourselves on soft ground so that we can see the light and make out the light that has been there all along. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for sending your son who is willing to kneel and get his hands dirty to heal us. Father, help us to let go of our assumptions that serve to just make us feel in control or make us feel like we know it all so that we can soften and prepare the ground we stand on. That when new life appears in whatever surprising ways God chooses, we will embrace, cherish, and celebrate the good news of your creation. Amen. We are going to receive communion now, and the way we do that here is ushers will come down front and dismiss you row by row. You can come down front, uh, pick a server, and they will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can answer however you're comfortable. Um, As you know, there's no barrier to this table. We encourage everyone who calls on the name of Christ to please join us here. First, we'll read from 1 Corinthians, that is. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you drink this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let that world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good, that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come? Mm-hmm.